He's testing boundaries with words. It is the week of May 31st, and welcome to episode 134 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Jane Lee, visiting fellow at NSI and the head of policy and government relations at Rebellion Defense. Sarah Stewart, fellow at NSI and executive director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. Scott Kulinane, visiting fellow at NSI and executive director of the U.S.-Europe Alliance, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So President Biden went to Japan and South Korea last week. And of course, the focus of the trip was China. Uh, Two big stories, at least in my mind. One, the president articulated uh, U.S. policy in the event of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan uh, to some controversy. And second, the creation of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF. Uh, Let's talk about Taiwan first. Jane, welcome to Fault Lines. Great to have you with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Les. I'm excited to be part of the show. As for what exactly the president meant, I know it's not satisfying, but it's unclear what his intent was. Um, I give public officials a lot of grace when it comes to public speaking. It's an era of gotcha politics. There's tons of scrutiny. You have to be on your game and on your feet 24-7. And inevitably, there are missteps. I think what complicates things here, though, is that there have been repeated instances. This is now, I think, the third time where similar statements on Taiwan were made by the president and then reversed by staff who assert that the U.S. isn't challenging the status quo regarding Taiwan. And that status quo is strategic ambiguity. It was established in the Taiwan's Relations Act almost 50 years ago. It allows the U.S. to recognize the one China policy while supplying defensive arms to Taiwan. But it leaves open the question on what the U.S. response will be for further actions. This policy, though, was set at a different stage of growth for China. The question is whether this strategy continues to deter with a much stronger country, both militarily and economically, that China is today on the world stage. And as to the president's intent, even his Democratic allies on the Hill are contradicting White House staff, saying that the president's statements are where his mind and heart are. And it mirrors a lot of the sentiment from the Republican side that there needs to be clarity in where the U.S. stands and that we need to be careful and deliberate with the policy here. So you had statements from key members of the House like Adam Schiff and Representative Luria as well on the Senate side, Representative, uh, sorry, Senator Coons, the senator to Biden's home state, Delaware. You had Chairman Menendez, who heads up Senate foreign relations, and then to Senator Blumenthal, who actually went further. He said that the bullies of the world need to know we're going to take a stand. And so it might be, regardless of whether the president's comments are intended or unintended, it's possible the remarks may have the same result in how it's interpreted by the PRC, that it's a move at least rhetorically away from one China. All right, Jane, let me push you a little bit on on kind of the specifics here, because uh, I agree with you. This is this is not a mistake. He's done this three times at least. Uh, it does seem to be a, a specific th- message he is trying to get across, even though after he says it, his staff comes out and says, well, what he really meant was this, which is slightly different. It seems like seems a little bit like... Uh, it seems very intentional to me, but I want to I want to drill down on one thing with you. President said the U.S. would help defend Taiwan in the event of Chinese aggression. Does that mean sending troops into harm's way, or does that mean the provision of military assistance, much like what we're doing with Ukraine? 
in your view? Yeah, in my view, I think maybe, again, the statements himself and the president doesn't matter. Um, Leader McConnell more recently said that uh, you have to look beyond just the words. You have to take the administration where they are at face value. And he said to actually show actions, that actions are louder than words, um, that Taiwan needs more military assistance in the form of sales and uh, uh, economic assistance as well in terms of helping them defend themselves. And he also made a connection between what's happening in Ukraine and the Russian aggression there with what might happen in Taiwan. So providing assistance, um, whether that's boots on the ground or um, uh, continued sales of military equipment over to Taiwan, um, it's hard to say, but there needs to be actions that are committed to those words. It can't be just the rhetoric itself. Scott, uh, I know you're following uh, the events in Ukraine as closely as anyone is. And of course, it is the big story, very dramatic, a lot of surprises over the last three months uh, about the, the ability of the Ukrainians to hold off the Russians. Let's hope that continues. How much do you think President Biden is using the example of Ukraine as a it's kind of a template for what the U.S. response might be in the event of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan? That's a great question. Um, but it's also something of a hard question to answer. Um, and I'll explain why. Um, over the last few months, a number of commentators have tried to draw these parallels or make connections between um, Ukraine um, and Taiwan, between Europe and Asia. And even going back to last year, last summer, um, as the U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan, I remember lots of comparisons about what the example of Afghanistan would mean for Europe or what it would mean for Asia. And I have generally been very cautious or hesitant to draw these kinds of connections. They're, they're very different situations, different actors, um, different circumstances. And generally, I found that making these kinds of comparisons probably tells you more about the agenda or point of view of the person making the comparison than it does about the actual strategic situation um, in either of these places. The other reason it's hard to, to answer that question is, as Jane was saying, the, the comments that President Biden made in Japan were, were pretty unclear. Um, and I, you know, and maybe he was intentionally unclear. But even the the back and forth with the reporter that got so much of the of the attention, uh, the question was vague, um, and the answer was vague. Um, and so it's certainly possible that the um, the White House's effort to, to kind of clean up the example and and to, and to clean up the answer and to say this wasn't a change in policy and it really didn't mean to sound as bad as it did. Or as you know, it sounds a poly change as it did. That, that's that's plausible. It, it, that's totally totally possible. Um, but of course, as as you just pointed out, um, this is not the first time this has happened, and and it's happened not just since the invasion of Ukraine um, on February twenty fourth. It also happened last year uh, before the invasion as well. So I think you can find plausible data points that kind of on each side of, of, of the ledger. So um, it's really a little bit unclear what exactly um, Biden is trying to convey here. One thing I, I do think in, in one way that there might be a useful um, comparison um, between what's happening in Ukraine and in Taiwan, um, I think might be a, a useful comparison about or useful lesson about the role of U.S. 
military assistance and the ability for the U.S. to weigh in in a conflict without being a party to the conflict. Uh, and especially in my, you know, in my professional career, uh, looking back on Afghanistan and Iraq, um, you know, lots of difficulties with U.S. military assistance, a, a lot of, uh, of promises, a lot of unmet promises, a lot of underperformance, um, and a lot of good effort, and a lot of money spent, not always yielding the strategic uh, effects that were desired. And one thing we might be seeing from Ukraine is that this is something the U.S. can still do, that we can provide military assistance in a way which is constructive, um, but not necessarily escalatory in a way that we don't want to see. And so I think that might be the comparison um, that's useful for, for the world and for the American audience, that the U.S. can help uh, Taiwan can provide military weapons to Taiwan, but doesn't necessarily, that doesn't equal a direct military confrontation with China. And for me, that's the useful comparison um, between the two situations. Sarah, I'm uh, going to turn to you next on this uh, Taiwan question. I'm going to be um, maybe a little bit more provocative than I would normally be and say the risk here for the president as he makes these statements and then, and then and then his staff you know does the walk back a little bit or the walk modification is that our policy of strategic ambiguity might be uh, moving towards strategic incoherence uh, and I say that because there's a context with President Biden and I say this with love of someone who has perhaps more than his fair share of verbal malapropisms and perhaps more, today than he did a few years ago. So what's your, what's your take on this, this kind of overall messaging situation from the White House? Yeah, this is a great question, Les. I think it's unlikely that the president has gaffed multiple times. I think he speaks from the heart. And so that could be, you know, why you're seeing some incoherence with where his staff is coming out. Um, and this isn't the only area where he has said this. He had another gaffe earlier on about, you know, essentially taking Putin out of, of, of office. Um, was that a gaffe? Was that strategic? Was that just him speaking from the heart? I'm not sure. I actually think, though, in this scenario where we're talking about, you know, this sort of concept of strategic ambiguity being on the line, I sort of think that he's testing that line in a way that is actually helpful to some extent. Um, I think that he is going right up to a line, but then not crossing it uh, to Jane's point, you know, there's, there's words and then there's actions right now. We're not in actions, thankfully. Um, so he's testing boundaries with words. I think um, we are in an unprecedented time. The level of aggression that we're seeing from China uh, towards Taiwan, especially in the shadow of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, puts us on different footing than we've been in the past, where it may have been easier to tow the strategic ambiguity line. I think he's, you know, I think he's able to offer Taiwan some assurances in the way that he is talking about, you know, coming to their defense, but then putting kind of very little meat on the bones of what that means, which gives China some assurances. So yes, I think that there's some incoherence there, but I actually think 
that the larger state of ambiguity <laughs> of his comments is, uh, is, is, is helpful signaling to both Taiwan and to China. Okay, let's do a, a round the horn question. China's been pretty provocative with China, with Taiwan of late uh, bellicose rhetoric, some little bit of wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, you know, plenty of military flights uh, in Taiwanese airspace. Do you think China will actually engage in military activity against Taiwan, let's say in the next, I don't know, two and a half years. Give, give me a yes or no answer and then a quick explainer why. Jane, we'll go to you first. At least in the next two years, I think no. There doesn't seem to be demonstrated at least you know, visible mobilization to enable a large scale amphibious invasion, which is what China would need to do to invade Taiwan. Taiwan has a whole set of islands like the uh, Pingu Archipelago and a 2 million population, which will likely make any military engagement difficult. But I think we need to take this threat seriously. Um, aside from the over 100 flybys in Taiwan airspace, airspace uh, President Xi has declared the reabsorption of Taiwan into China's sovereign territory as a long-term goal. There has been concerns also about China's milestone for the 100th anniversary of the People's Liberation Army that they aim to modernize the PLA with new capabilities and long-range precision strikes. They're also focusing on investments in cyber and space and expanding its nuclear forces. And I think we need to take a look at where they're actually dedicating resources and outpacing our own investments. And that's an AI in emerging technology. So Xi had set time-specific targets to put China on a path to dominance over AI technology by 2030. So this might be opening up a whole new different kind of war where AI plays a significant role in how the PLA operates and their efforts to degrade our own and as well as our allies' military capabilities there. I think we need to take this threat seriously. Scott? On a two-year timetable, the answer is no. Uh, I think part of that um, is going to be due to change in American policy. Um, you know, Sarah just used the term um, gaffe to talk about President Biden's um, kind of off the cuff statements about Taiwan. And I was thinking to myself, you know, in, in D.C., you know, a gaffe is when a politician says what he really thinks. Um, and so I think that's, you know, it exactly was a gaffe. You know, I think Biden was was being um, honest um, when he's made these um, uh, comments about Taiwan. I think we're at a time when we're um, moving from a, a stance of strategic ambiguity um, and maybe moving beyond that to a point where uh, we'll be more definitive um, about defending Taiwan. Uh, and I think Sarah was exactly right about in the interim, there's um, stuff, there's verbiage um, for both sides and what Biden is saying. But I can see domestically, this has also begun a conversation within the U.S., and has you know begun to uh, prepare the conversation in D.C. to shift away from ambiguity um, and towards a world where uh, a mutual defense pact with Taiwan is not unthinkable. And actually, you know, if if we're going to say we have a defense pact de facto, you know, it's not that big a you know jump to make it de jure. So I think in the next two years, China will not invade Taiwan, and part of that is because the U.S. is going to become more um, definitive and more vocal about our security guarantees for the island. So we're talking about the end of the one China policy, Scott. I I think that's where we're headed. Um, And uh, I I, I, I think that's just the path we're on um, and we're going to get there. And it's just a matter of how many um, twists and turns are in that pathway. 
but I, I, th- I think that's where we're headed eventually. I'm not sure when, but eventually. Sarah, what do you say to the question of China acting militarily against Taiwan? No in 2.5 years, unless, unless uh, President Xi sees that there is a closing window for him to assert a legacy or he's sick or something else transpires where he feels like if he waits, he may never be able to realize this goal of reunification with the mainland. Um, Otherwise, I am hopeful that, you know, this will just be a lot more of, you know, the same types of shows of aggression, but without any further, you know, steps to turn it into a real conflict. Great. All right. I'm going to I'm going to say something similar, Sarah, although not totally the same. I think the risk is real if Xi Jinping thinks that his elevation uh, to a third term as supreme leader of China is at risk. And we'll know that in the next two, three months. Uh, and I don't really think it's at risk, but there certainly have been some murmurings more than you might think about whether he can get this unprecedented third term. I think this is going to be driven by domestic politics. It's been pretty useful for Chinese leaders to complain about Taiwan over time to galvanize public sentiment inside China. I think they want to keep doing that. But if Xi Jinping's move towards total control and kind of a lifetime appointment to this job is at risk, then I think that changes the dynamic. So I think the next couple of months might be kind of dicey here. All right, let's turn to this. The second big news that came out of uh, the president's trip, which is the very exciting Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Sarah, please help our listeners uh, understand what is IPEF and and how significant is it? Yes. So I think uh, the IPEF is, you know, one of this administration's signature initiatives. Uh, it brings me back to early days of the Obama administration and the pivot to Asia and the, you know, full government effort to finalize the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, was, which was as much a trade agreement as it was a geopolitical strategic positioning <laughs> agreement that did not include include China. So it's really interesting. And I bring up the TPP because I think it's important for us to understand the history here of how we got to IPEF and why it looks different than TPP. So the TPP included the U.S. and, and 12 other countries. It was signed under the Obama administration, um, but it was quickly panned by... Hillary Clinton, who was on the campaign trail, even though she did support it while she was Secretary of State. And then when President Trump was elected, he pulled the U.S. out before it ever went to Congress for a vote. Importantly, though, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement was a massive, largest ever regional trade agreement. It had everything in it. It lowered tariffs on a number of goods, but it addressed myriad issues, labor, environment, textiles, financial services, digital trade, agriculture. Um, This was a huge agreement. With the U.S. out of it, it did proceed forward with the 11 other countries. At the same time, uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership was born, which was another major trade agreement in the region. This one included China. So now what we have is we've got two massive trade agreements in the Indo-Pacific region 
neither of which with the U.S., one of which with China. So enter IPEF. I think IPEF is this administration's way to counterbalance uh, Chinese government influence in the Indo-Pacific region by having the U.S. deepen its economic partnership with many of the countries that were part of the TPP, but also a few others. Um, however, it does so in a way that excludes some of the provisions from TPP that the administration perceives were the reasons that stakeholders did not like it, namely that it lowered tariffs. And, you know, that act alone, uh, many stakeholders would say, was the reason that, you know, many U.S. jobs have been lost over time and offshore. So the IPEF, as it's going forward today, includes the U.S., Australia, Brunei, India, importantly, was not a TPP uh, partner, Indonesia, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, New Zealand, Singapore, Philippines, Thailand, and Vietnam, about 40% of GDP. Uh, it does not include tariffs, but it is going to focus on issues of the day like digital economy, resilient supply chains, clean economy, and, and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. It's very nascent stages. Um, I don't think that any text has been exchanged or anything like that. And as I understand it, it continues to be open to other partners to join, including potentially Taiwan. All right, Jane, uh, I'm going to go out of order here and go to you next and um, ask you to disagree with Sarah. Do you think anyone will be talking about IPEF in a year? Well, you know what? Um, <laughs> there are points of agreement I have with, with Sarah here. Ultimately, I think engaging our partners in the Indo-Pacific is enormously important amid a renewed great power competition with China and Russia. But there's a question of what the IPEF is, because it's not a trade deal in the conventional sense. It doesn't have market access provisions or moves you know, to lower barriers and tariffs, which Sarah mentioned, nor is it a security alliance like the Quad, like the countries, including U.S., South Korea, Japan, and Australia. So uh, I do agree. Ultimately, the Indo-Pacific economic framework needs further negotiation and time to see what it can evolve to. And the framework is just that. It's the beginning of talks attempting to construct an economic strategy to replace the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But it needs more teeth and flesh to the bones. Enforcement is a big open question here. So I hope we will be talking about it in a year. The question is, though, why isn't this a trade agreement? And the politics and the votes aren't there ultimately on the floor in the U.S. Uh, ultimately, Trump did leave the TPP on his first day of office, but this was also the result of a long trail of events where you saw detractors from both sides of the aisle characterizing the deal as not good enough. And uh, for the president, I think any trade deal would need stronger labor and environmental provisions to satisfy the left, and the powerful constituencies there, and that takes time. Um, in addition, I'm not so sure that the CPTPP countries, as Sarah mentioned, that moved on forward without us, without the U.S., would welcome a U.S. return for a regional trade deal without some level of skepticism here. Scott, um, let me ask you more about the kind of the diplomatic aspects of this agreement. Uh, I see it as another kind of loose network of nations, a little bit like the Quad, big, bigger, of course, a little bit like AUKUS, the Australia, United Kingdom, United States agreement on some 
Defense Matters, that's basically designed to be kind of a, a coalition of the willing preparing for a challenge from China. Do you think this model for IPEF is going to be successful? I would say it depends what what the goal is. You know, if we define success as containing China, then it has no shot. It's just too too undefined, um, too small, not broad or deep enough to come anywhere close to um, a grand goal like that. Um, but yeah, I think what I can say, you know, much less eloquently than, than Sarah or Jane, um, is that it provides, you know, an economic agenda for U.S. diplomatic outreach for the Indo-Pacific. I think we're, we're, we're much more comfortable talking about security terms. Um, you know, we don't really have, a, a, you know, a piece, an economic piece to go along with the security dialogue. And I think that that's, that's the benefit of this, is it provides um, the economic agenda, the economic framework um, for the U.S. to have these conversations and 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 to be at the table, and and to do that, you know, it has some trade offs. Um, doesn't talk about market access. Um, goes around Congress mostly, um, and if I understand it right, it also has something of a of an a la carte framework. While there'll be several pillars. Um, to the agreement, and not all countries have to take part um, in all pillars. Um, so it, it really seems very flexible and is geared towards um, avoiding the pitfalls that have um, you know caused trouble in earlier agreements. And so it's really geared towards giving the U.S. something it can talk about economically in the region, um, something that's broad enough or flexible enough to grow and be inclusive um, for many countries, but also something that's not going to be you know, sabotaged domestically or, or be so um, damaging, damagingly domestically that it has to be um, given up. So containing China, not a chance, but it provides the economic um, framework, the economic agenda for the U.S. to be part of conversations that it's been trying to be a part of um, for years and just hasn't quite found the, the right way to go about it. So I think I agree with Jane you know, there's a lot of potential there and, and the frame and the, the construction and the framework as we know it so far seems good. Um, but there's definitely some trade-offs that have been made and, and they may turn out to be worthwhile and wise trade-offs, but definitely trade-offs. Uh, so for what it's worth, I'm going to answer my own question. I think the IPEF has some merit. It would be a lot better if it were a free trade zone uh, between the U.S. and and like-minded partners in the Indo-Pacific. That would be vastly preferable to this. But given, as Jane pointed out, and I think we all agree that that's just not politically going to happen right now, this might be the best we can do. And I do think it's an interesting idea to kind of do these bespoke international organizations that are purpose-driven, that have a kind of a common ground of a certain number of nation states looking to collaborate on certain issues. Of course, it depends on how much everyone is willing to do to help out. But this is a better model than kind of mandatory organizations that are really struggling right now, perhaps the United Nations system, the WHO, uh, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. We've seen some real issues in implementation there. Looser, purpose-driven groups like this may be a better way to go in terms of 
uh, multilateral diplomacy and, and addressing national security concerns. All right, I'll let I'll let my word be the final word on that topic. Unless Sarah, you want to jump in and say something. <laughs> well, you know, I was just about you know to to raise a hand as you said final word. Look, I want to just put one thing out there from my own experience. Um, working on TPP and TTIP with the EU and, you know, the USMCA environment chapter, which, you know, was, was my baby when I was at USTR. And, you know, what I can say is this, a, any approach that we're going to take should have carrots and sticks. All of one or all of the other is not going to work. What I want to see with IPEF is what is the stick? And I don't mean it has to be the same stick as we've used before, which was that we were going to, you know, if there was a violation, then we would suspend the tariff benefits. We're not going to have that because we have no tariff benefits to suspend in the current IPEF framework. But that doesn't mean that we can't set up a mechanism within the framework that allows for some suspension of benefits or some, you know, um, method of collecting a fine or a penalty or something, especially when it comes to some of the labor and environment provisions. So I think that, you know, and I've, I, and I've raised this with USTR too. We've got to think creatively here because there needs to be a way to hold everyone's feet to the fire, including ours. And it can't just be a carrot. Okay. I'm done. <laughs> All right. We will let that be the final word. Let's, um, let's shift to our, our kind of big second topic, which is, uh, this war crimes trial that happened in Ukraine a few days ago. Uh, Ukraine sentenced Russian tank commander Vadim Shishimarin. I'm sure I mispronounced that to life in prison for executing a, a 60, 62 year old Ukrainian civilian. A few days after the invasion began, the the young Russian soldier admitted this. I don't think the facts are in dispute. Uh, he's been he's been sentenced to life in prison. Scott, I want to go to you first here. Uh, this this could be the first of many war crimes trials in Ukraine. What's the significance of of what we're seeing unfold before our eyes right now? Thanks for the question. Um, and yes, I, I think this is pretty significant. Um, and this was the case you mentioned was the first. Um, I anticipate they'll probably end up being hundreds of cases, probably thousands thousands of defendants. Um, and it's not only good news, um, you know, for accountability and justice in the world, that, that individuals uh, who committed or ordered these crimes will be held accountable and will be punished. And I think it's also important that uh, these trials um, prevent these atrocities um, from just fading into the background of all the other, um, you know, bad or disturbing news in the world. Um, but it is interesting, and it, 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 it's significant for some other reasons uh, beyond those two. Um, and it might slightly pose some complications um, for Ukraine that I think are interesting to think about. Um, first, um, it raises questions around uh, POW, around prisoner of war exchanges. And I can very much imagine a situation where Russia will begin to um, uh, make a condition of any future prisoner of war exchanges that people who are found guilty in these trials must be exchanged. 
And that will pose quite a dilemma for Ukraine. These people who have been convicted of crimes, um, who've been found guilty, who, sh- who should spend lengthy prison sentences um, in prison, um, will end up going free in Russia. There's also another um, potential pitfall for Ukraine here that we already um, begin to see um, uh, in the media, and that is questions uh, of fairness. Um, so far, all of the um, uh, Russian soldiers who have been held accountable, um, who've been found guilty um, through these war crime trials, have all admitted their guilt, have all pled guilty. We haven't yet had a case of someone um, uh, pleading innocent. And it's already beginning to raise questions around the fairness of these trials. Um, and I'm not raising that question, but it will increasingly be a question um, that others raise. And certainly those um, that, that, that Moscow can inspire to raise the question will raise that question. Um, and so Ukraine will have to be um, prepared to really um, in some way show their homework that these trials truly do um, adhere to international standards. I expect they will, but um, it will have to be shown and not, not just assumed. Um, and, and lastly, I think it's interesting because we've already seen um, some mere imaging on the part of the Russian side. Um, and, and certain um, individuals linked to the Kremlin have held out the possibility of having war crimes trials for Ukrainian prisoners of war, um, particularly uh, those from the Azov Battalion, um, which probably several hundred of them were captured um, in the siege of Mariupol. Um, and actually, one, one member of the Russian Duma uh, has even um, put out the idea of having an equivalent of a Nuremberg trial and trying to put together an international tribunal, um, I guess, of Russia and China and I don't know who else, um, uh, to create an international tribunal to try um, Ukrainian soldiers, just to carry forward the comparisons to World War II and denazification, um, even you know one step further in the in a, in a, in a sick logic um, of, of the Kremlin. So it, it's certainly um, a really significant story. Uh, I'm so happy these individuals are being held accountable, um, but it, it does pose um, some complications, especially if if Russia does try um, to mirror image and to create um, uh, you know, their own version of a sham trial um, to take Ukrainian soldiers and treat them not as prisoners of war, um, but as, as criminals or as terrorists, uh, which have a, a very different standard of legal treatment in the Russian system. Jane, I think this, uh, as Scott points out, it brings up a lot of implications. Uh, I think one of them, at least in the minds of some folks, is the possibility that a, a, some sort of international body, perhaps the International Criminal Court or a more, um, you know, more tailored entity that to specifically look at Ukraine might uh, consider charges against Vladimir Putin for the invasion at all, which was, of course, totally unprovoked, at least by Ukraine. Um, uh, what are the prospects for something like that happening? You know, I, I think that this case also highlights some of the limits of both the Ukraine court and also international courts as well to enforce its jurisdiction. So could Putin and senior leaders in Russia be charged? Possibly if there is evidence that they directly ordered uh, the actions that led to violations of the Geneva Convention, especially for events like the mass execution of civilians in Bucha, 
Um, but I think it's almost impossible to enforce that ruling. So you mentioned the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Um, there's also the International Court of Justice, the ICJ. They play the formal role in upholding the rules of war. And yes, the ICC can prosecute individuals. Uh, they've already sent a large team of investigators to Ukraine. Uh, the ICC's chief prosecutor can ask the court's judges to issue arrest warrants to bring individuals to trial in The Hague, but the court doesn't have its own police force. So it relies heavily on the individual states to arrest suspects. And Russia isn't a member of the court, so it's unlikely to extradite any suspects, much less their own president. And you can't try a suspect in the ICC in absentia. Uh, kind of similar issues on the ICJ side. Now, they rule on disputes between states, and Ukraine actually began a case against Russia, even predating the recent invasion. If the ICJ rules against Russia, the UN Security Council would be responsible for enforcing that ruling again. And Russia, one of the council's five permanent members, can veto any proposals to take action. So there are, again, limits to international institutions in terms of trying to indict someone like Putin. Sarah, what kind of impact do you think uh, the war crimes conviction and perhaps others to follow are going to have on global perceptions of the Russian invasion? And I, and I realize Russia is already seen as as the bad guy, as it should be, by Americans and Europeans. Not so much in the in other parts of the world, Africa, Latin America, a little more diversity of thought on this question. Do you think these war crimes trials could impact those perceptions? Um, I'd like to think that they will... Um, I think part of, you know, trying a war criminal is bringing them to justice, but part of it is, you know, kind of bringing the facts to light of, of what's happening. And, you know, I think that the fact that they have been able to act on this so quickly um, is, uh, you know, is really important. A lot of times we've seen, you know, war crimes take many years to work their way through, through the system. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, hopefully it will help to raise further awareness. Will it change perceptions? I'm not sure. I think that most people whose perceptions are that this is, you know, a, an unprovoked, you know, invasion are not going to change, change their mind one way or the other with respect to this. I would say though that you know, kind of drawing a little bit on 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 something that Scott said and and also Jane, I mean, you've got the the reality of on the one hand, Russia could also step in and want to, you know, hold its own its own trial. On the other hand, you've got these international bodies out there that have limitations. Uh, one thing that I've been thinking about is there's very little, um, you know, legitimate and accurate reporting that it's going back to the Russian people. And so I would be interested to see how this is being spun, given that this is being done by a Ukrainian court um, and how biased the reporting is back to the Russian people and how they'll be perceiving all, all of this. And, you know, short of going after Putin, is there room for the ICC to be stepping in, uh, you know, more broadly in terms of, of prosecuting uh, war crimes, both now and dating back to the earlier annexation of, of Crimea, which I've been reading is something that the ICC could potentially take up if the data were there. So I don't know if maybe having an international body could help 
uh, to sort of uh, make this more legitimate or less legitimate for the Russian people and for Russian soldiers. But that is one thing that I've been thinking about when it comes to perceptions. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, I think the other the other one thing I would add to this is good for the Ukrainians uh, who, again, are really being a model for the rest of us uh, while we're all distracted by crazy political prosecutions and nattering nabobs of negativism in our own country. They're out there on the front lines dealing with an invasion from a massively larger neighbor and doing the right thing under the rule of law to address a really difficult situation. You know, they could just keep these guys in prison or execute them or something like that. And instead, they're they're doing things, as far as I can tell, by the book and doing it the right way and showing real faith in you know, human reason and the rule of law and, you know, kind of the values of the Western enlightenment, heaven forbid we say something like that anymore. Like, you know, we can do this, people. Uh, I think, you know, so good for the Ukrainians. I'm an even bigger fan than I was before to the extent that matters at all. All right, let's pivot to the the final part of the show where we talk about the story that we're each following that's not necessarily on the front page. Sarah, we'll go to you first. Thanks so much. One of the things that I'm thinking about in... Uh, on the eve of the leaders meeting for Summit of the Americas is the agenda that they've set forth is an ambitious one and looks at prosperity in the region. But it doesn't focus a lot on supply change, which has been something that the U.S. has been very focused on in all of its partnerships with IPEF, with the EU, and many other partners. And we are doing a lot of research here at Silverado into the Chinese government's moves towards mining and uh, processing outside of the Chinese mainland. And obviously, it's no secret that this has been uh, a focus of the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa. But there is quite a bit, billions of dollars of investment in Latin America, which is also very resource rich when it comes to mining and extraction. So what I would say to the leaders who are meeting is that, you know, we have a national security situation upon us where we have tight supply of many critical minerals that we need for applications that include military applications, semiconductors, and other things. Much of that is concentrated either in Asia or in uh, Chinese government control. And we could look to work with our neighbors on that, but there's already somebody at the party. And we need to be in the party. <laughs> we need to figure out how we can work in the Western Hemisphere with many of these partners who we have trade agreements with and other relationships on this particular issue of critical mineral supply chains. Scott? Well, I'm thinking about the story from a few days ago when the EU uh, finally came to an agreement uh, imposing a, a partial oil embargo um, on Russia, uh, limiting the amount of piped oil that will be allowed to be um, imported from Russia into the EU. Um, I'm glad this happened. Uh, it took about a month of, of negotiating. And I'm thinking about um, why it took so long. 
And it is more than one reason, but uh, one country in particular um, really um, threw up quite a stink in trying to block this particular piece of, uh, of sanctions legislation, uh, and that was Viktor Orban's Hungary. And it hasn't gotten much of a response yet from Washington, but I'm thinking back to all of the grief and outrage that that Berlin was subject to, and rightly so, um, for trying to build the Nord, the Nord Stream Two pipeline, and, and what a strategically bankrupt idea that was. Um, but I think as things have changed, it's not just Germany that is causing a problems um, for a more coherent um, sanctions regime against Russia. There are some other governments in Europe that are also difficult. Um, Berlin was the target for a lot of outrage and a lot of uh, a lot of harsh words, not undeserved. But uh, there are some other governments that seem to not be getting uh, much in the way of any attention, either from Congress or from the U.S. government. Um, and I think in the weeks ahead, it might be, might be time um, for the U.S. really to think now that we've gone beyond Nord Stream two. What does the U.S. um, energy policy towards Europe look like? And what is the agenda uh, for keeping uh, a coherent sanctions regime going forward? Um, It can't just all be outsourced to Brussels and the EU. The U.S. has to be involved. Um, Looking forward to seeing what that looks like in the months ahead. So I'm following uh, action here in the U.S. and the prospects for a full year defense authorization and funding bill. Um, Starting the week of June 6th, the House comes back into session. The House Armed Services begins their markup of the defense authorization bill at subcommittee level and then finishes up with the full committee mark of the bill on June 22nd. But, you know, we're coming into and we already are in the swing of a contentious election year. There's renewed efforts um, per Senator Manchin on a partisan spending bill called reconciliation underway. There's spending fatigue after trillions of dollars in stimulus spending and emergency war supplementals this year. So I think there's an open question on what happens to these defense bills this year amid all the geopolitical tension and war. Um, there's going to be a lot of incentive for this Congress to punt a stopgap bill or what we call a continuing resolution, a CR, for members to see what happens in November and delay key decisions into next year. I think, though, especially if the Republicans win back the majority over the House or both chambers, there's going to be a renewed attempt to get the fiscal state of the nation into shape. And there's going to be pushback from the Biden administration and congressional Democrats. So it's high stakes next year. There's debt limit on the table in 2023, too. So we may be going into fiscal wars between parties next year, and we'll have to see how national security funding fares amidst these struggles. And um, if we if Congress doesn't finish its job, uh, you know, we've avoided full year CRs for defense thus far in U.S. history. So this would be the first time that funding for the Defense Department would be flat. Amazing. Uh, I'm tracking the human rights case of Paul Recessa Bagina. He's the hero from the movie Hotel Rwanda. During the genocide in 1994, uh, he protected over 1,200 people from being slaughtered, mostly Tutsis, in, in the heart of the genocide in Kigali, Rwanda. 
Uh, he's currently, this is amazing, uh, a political prisoner in Rwanda. He was kidnapped by the Kagame government. He's being uh, held. Uh, he's been, uh, he was given a sham trial and convicted uh, of absurd charges, sentenced to 25 years uh, in prison. The Biden administration has finally declared his case uh, one of wrongful detention, which means uh, the president's special envoy for hostage negotiations and prisoner exchange is going to take on this case. That's good. It's getting a lot more international attention. Uh, the Hollywood activists have gotten involved. There are T-shirts. There's a whole social media campaign. This is being brought up in security at security forums around the world. It's uh, so attention is getting focused on Rwanda and its very bad human rights record, particularly against Paul Recessa-Bagina, who is a, a very unlikely political prisoner. All right, that's a wrap for this episode and this semester. We are taking a break in June, but be sure to tune back in in July for a special limited summer series that will highlight the many serious human rights violations we are witnessing across the globe, from war crimes in Ukraine to new information coming out about China's treatment of the Uyghur minority group in Xinjiang province. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonmatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Gabriella Hensinger for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. 